Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Joe Biden, too busy to visit the border while he's going to be in Phoenix. Besides, the border doesn't even matter. The border's not an issue. And not visit the border. Because there's a more important thing going on. They're going to invest billions of dollars in a new enterprise. There's more important things going on than the border to the President of the United States. Precious. Precious is Joe Biden. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. 833 got Tony. 833-468-8669. Doesn't think it's important. He doesn't think it's important. It's, he's, he's letting you know what he's all about. He's letting you know how he thinks or is told what to say. Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, that He is what he is. And I find it amazing. You know, we talk about Herschel Walker and losing uh, the election to Raphael Warnock only by a couple of points. But you listen to the political left, you know, attack Herschel Walker I mean, they all have. He's not smart enough. He's a fool. He's this. He's that. I swear to you, it's some of the most racist stuff I've ever seen. I did not know that you could speak about a black candidate in these terms. Oh, wait, hold on. Oh, he's a Republican. Okay, so it's okay. It's okay to say it about a Republican. It's okay to say that a black man is inarticulate as long as they're a Republican. Got it. Got. It. I I clearly had not uh, been made aware uh, of of the rules. But what does it say? And by the way, those are the rules. The, the left's rules is that if somebody on the right says it about somebody on the left, it's bigoted. If someone left says it about someone on the right, well, it's just the facts. It's precious. Again. And then there's this total bit of missing the mark from Stephen Colbert on his late night show, where he goes about mocking uh, Herschel Walker, and then... The late show is ready to project that Herschel Walker does not belong in the Senate. That's Stephen Colbert not wanting black men in uh, the Senate. That's not it. Wait, is that on it? Oh, Raphael Warnock is also black. Okay. Okay, so he's only okay with black men in the Senate who agree with him. Got it. Got it. Look, of course I don't think this has anything to do with racism. I'm just taking their rules and I'm applying them. Don't get angry with me. These are their rules, people. Oh, yeah. I expect emails. If Herschel Walker was a Democrat, all you would hear is about how it was bigotry towards Herschel Walker and the support of Raphael Warnock. Tokenism. Just, just, just a token black man. That's all you would hear. But then Stephen Colbert goes completely into the realm of a lack of self-awareness. The U.S. Senate is no place for people whose brains don't work because of football injuries. It's a place for people whose brains don't work because they're 1,000 years old. (laughs) Democrats elected John Fetterman. The party is very okay with people whose brains don't work. 
Oh, oh, wait, hold on. I'm not allowed to say that because it's ableism, but Stephen Colbert can say that Herschel Walker's brain doesn't work because he's a late night host. Just trying to keep up with the rules, guys. The very best I can. The border doesn't matter, and self-awareness doesn't exist from the left, and and I'm supposed to just be cool with that. Look, I, I got enough problems on the right to choke a horse. You heard me talk uh, to Kurt Schlichter. Noah Rothman's going to join us in a little bit. Very interesting piece about what the Democrats are trying to do to try and eliminate problems But the question is, are they creating more problems for themselves? Uh, Don't think that it's only the Republican Party that has got a lot of soul searching to do and and a lot to, to, to answer for. But I don't know if there's a story right now bigger, bigger than what's going on with Twitter and these Twitter files and the latest. And the latest, you know, a lot of people asked, oh, they released all this information about uh, from Twitter about how they were suppressing the whole conversation about Hunter Biden's laptop and and uh, they wouldn't let certain information out and look look at what they did. Look at what they did right there in keeping that information from the American people and people are like yeah we already knew that so 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 where's the where's the big splash? Where's the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where's the bombshell? Where's the bombshell? Well, I said at the time, well, maybe the bombshell in all of these files being released and then put out in terms of uh, discussed by former Rolling Stone columnist uh, and, and, and contributor Matt Taibbi, maybe it's that the political left attacked Matt Taibbi, who is a leftist, for doing PR for the world's richest man. That line got used all over the place as if a memo had gone out, call it PR, and don't forget to mention he's the world's richest man. Because somehow the world's richest man uh, can't uh, have anybody who agrees with him. So, uh, very weird how, how much they hate money, except, of course, when it's their, their own money. They hate money unless, of course, it's their, you know, it's, it's you giving them the money. When their money, it's fine. When your money, ah, that you shouldn't have that. That's ill-gotten. So people asked about this bombshell. There was no bombshell to me. I think the bombshell is how the left treated uh, anybody who would go against them. Remember, they're most upset that they don't, don't control Twitter anymore. And Twitter worked overtime to ensure you never heard about the Hunter Biden laptop story. They decided to put it under hacked material, even though it wasn't. They uh, created a reason, and then they made sure the links didn't work. Uh, they made sure that they were taking cues from the Democratic Party. This is what they were doing. This is who they are. And, and everyone's like, yeah, we're not surprised. They're very okay with this. Then you learn that Twitter's lawyer is a guy by the name of Jim Baker. And you're like, Jim Baker? Wasn't that the guy with Tammy Faye? No, no, no. Completely different James Baker. And then you're like, James Baker? Wasn't that the guy with like Reagan and, and, and Bush? No, no. Very, very different James Baker. Just so we understand each other. James Baker is a former FBI lawyer. And as an FBI uh, lawyer, you know what he signed off on? He signed off on the FISA warrant to surveil Carter Page in the Trump administration. Before the Trump administration really even took hold, all predicated 
on the Steele dossier, which was an absolute gigantic world-class USDA choice phony. You're a phony. Hey, this guy's a great big phony. The Steele dossier was a lie. It was a lie from beginning to end. The subsource was a known liar to the FBI, and they utilized it anyway. They didn't care that it was factual. They didn't give a damn about the law. They didn't give a damn about what you knew. They just thought they could craft a narrative, and you, you sucker, you would just take it. And then he got let go. Of course, he couldn't be in the FBI anymore. So he got hired by his friends at Twitter. And as the deputy general counsel at Twitter, he was the one when Elon Musk said, hey, make sure Matt Taibbi gets these documents. He was reviewing the documents and deciding what could be sent out. So as got said on uh, Twitter by Michael Seifert, I don't know Michael Seifert personally, but he said it great. The former FBI general counsel who personally signed off on FISA warrants to spy on Trump was also the Twitter deputy counsel who urged them to censor Hunter Biden's laptop and was editing the Twitter files before they were released. It's impossible to make any of this up. That's correct. It was this lawyer, James Baker, who said, well, we should put this Hunter Biden laptop story under hacked materials. And people said, well, we don't know it was hacked. And he said, "Ah, better to be safe than sorry. He worked proactively to keep the story from getting out and then was either keeping possibly certain files from Matt Taibbi or was reviewing what Matt Taibbi had done to decide what could get said. Holy cow. Now, do I still need to look for bombshells to understand the level of duplicitous, disgusting this is? The political left has proven that the ends justify the means. Now, somebody's going to say to me, well, what about the political right? I'm going to say, yeah, what about it? You don't even have a political right that's totally uh, wrapped up around Trump. The divisions are clear. You might not want to talk about it, but who really cares? The facts are the facts, and that's what we got here. The political left allowed this, and they're supporting this, at least from those people with the largest megaphones. Trust that party at your own risk, man. Well, look, you could argue trust any party at your own risk, but look at this. Meanwhile, Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, is talking to Elon Musk through Twitter. Musk has, there's going to be more about the Twitter files coming out. Uh, Barry Weiss, formerly of the New York Times, is, has these documents. She's going to be doing the reporting and uh, there, I guess they were going to put it out um, sometime soon. They don't have it out yet. And Jack Dorsey says, if the goal is transparency to build trust, why not just release everything without filter and let people judge for themselves, including all discussions around current and future actions? Make everything public now. Why didn't Jack Dorsey? This was all happening... All of these uh, suppression tools utilized against the New York Post and this Hunter Biden laptop story. While he was CEO, he found out about it. He didn't do anything about it. He didn't fire people. What's he talking about? Now, 
if you ask me, and would I be bothered by um, by everything being released? The answer is no. I think it's weird for Jack Dorsey to play this level of of, of armchair quarterback. When this all happened on his watch and he did nothing. Very, very strange. I don't plan on forgetting that he did nothing. He didn't know that they were doing it at first. Okay, he then did know what leadership did he engage to stop it. Who did he fire? The answer is no one. The answer is no one. But he feels he can just chime in here. It's. We, we live in the weirdest timeline. We really do. I've got more coming up. Find everything. TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz today. Can't let the day go by without recognizing that it is indeed December 7th. It is Pearl Harbor Day. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. It's just that easy to do, my people. That easy, that simple. You should go do it immediately. But it was after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The attack by the Imperial Japanese. That there in front of a joint session, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said the time for war is here. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might 
will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Say what you will about policy, and I have said much about FDR in my life. That was laying it down. Right there, December 8th, that speech was given in 1941, the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's important to remember that, you know, you can still be friends with a nation after doing what is necessary. We were attacked. We beat the living daylights out of them. We made them admit that Hirohito was not a god. And the relationship seems pretty solid now. The Germans, we beat them back through the forests. We destroyed everything in our path to end Hitler's reign. Now the relationship is pretty good, except, of course, they relied on Russia for energy and they realized what a mistake that was. A little too late, but they can still correct. For the people who want to say, you know, violence never solved anything. Oh, yes, it has. More than once. You just got to have willpower. Oh, and by the way, everybody who fought, wokeness didn't matter. Today still doesn't matter. And we may have even a better fighting force if we actually train them to be a fighting force and let them do it. I'm Tony Katz. So there's all this focus about what the Republicans did wrong this midterm elections. They didn't uh, hit it red wave, more like a red ripple. (laughs) They're very funny. These people are hilarious. They're going to open up for Carrot Top in Vegas any day now. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Everything at TonyKatz.Locals.com. 
Republicans didn't hit it the way they needed uh, to hit it. Republicans did not bring the victories the way they were supposed to bring the victories. And in the Senate, they didn't bring any victories. Let's say it again. They didn't bring any victories. And of course, just yesterday, Herschel Walker losing in uh, the runoff election to Raphael Warnock. Now, he didn't lose huge. He didn't lose by 100 points or by 10 points. He lost by what? Two, three points. So it's it wasn't... Or is it this conversation of candidate quality? But there's something else going on, which is Democrats taking a look at House races where they clearly did not bring it home. Look what happened in New York. Look what happened in California. Two states that made it possible for Republicans to keep the House of Representatives. I should say take back the House of Representatives. And now a conversation about what is it that 2024 looks like? Because all eyes are ahead. And how do Democrats ensure that they're able to keep power? They're think, in, in my view, they're trying to learn the lesson of what they'll call Trump and not go about bringing about the worst of what their party has to offer. And the worst are the socialists, are the progressives who did extremely well in these midterms. Noah Rothman joins us right now. He is from Commentary Magazine. Commentary.org is where you find his work. And you've written about that part of it by Victories Undone. Uh, you can find that at Commentary.org. But first, let's go back to this conversation about Herschel Walker. You have been... Um, I'm I'm not going to say it rudely. I'm just saying it directly. Very critical of Trump has not brought about victories. You've been you've been clear on on this subject. Is this the as we see what happened in the Senate? Is this the fault of Trump or is this the fault of the Republican Party? Uh, I think it's very difficult to make the case that there's some the institutional GOP is responsible for this save i suppose you could make the case that their passivity in 2022 is responsible in some small measure for the failure of the candidates that were handpicked by Donald Trump and who all of them to a man came up short uh in 2020 in 2014 for example the republican institutional republican party had learned the lessons of 2010 that it was their responsibility to engage early and actively in order to ensure equitable and successful outcomes. Uh, One springs to mind was this backroom deal that was done uh, by Mitch McConnell and forces loyal to Mitch McConnell in Colorado, where they convinced Ken Buck, who had lost a 2010 Senate election to Michael Bennett, to back off, run for a House seat, clear the path for Cory Gardner. Cory Gardner won the Colorado Senate seat. Incidentally, the last time a Republican held a Colorado Senate seat. In 2022, the deck was stacked against the institutionalists and the GOP. They backed off and let the, uh, the MAGA wing and Trump candidates have the run of the place. And we see how that turned out. There's a comforting narrative that I saw uh, articulated by Laura Ingram on Fox News Channel last night, which is that the Republican Party in, in the runoff was outspent three to one. And she pressed her guests to explain why that happened. None of whom did. If they had explained what happened, they would have noted that Herschel Walker was left for dead by Donald Trump, Donald Trump-aligned PACs, even um, Senator uh, uh, Scott, um, NRSC, the National Republican Campaign Committee, put no, almost no money into this race. What, um, who did was Mitch McConnell's Senate leadership PAC. They dumped $18 million, likely throwing good money after bad, but only to stave off this very familiar, very cathartic and comforting narrative that uh, they have no complicity and share no responsibility 
for these bad outcomes. It is not a failure of judgment on their part. This is all done to them. They are passive participants in the universe, just kind of existing and being buffeted by events. Um, that is a narrative that I hope is combated early, often, and very vocally by the party's institutionalists with a vested interest in actually winning election. I haven't seen it yet, but if they allow that narrative to fester, it could most certainly become the dominant narrative on the insurgent right, which would ensure that the very same problems that plague the party this year continue to plague it in two years from now. Now, it's funny, that clip got, got shared around. It was uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, former uh, Trump uh, campaign manager, and it was uh, Molly Hemingway, uh, uh, who uh, writes with with The Federalist and ha- is often on point and, and, and on target, uh, but certainly uh, more uh, in, in, in the rough and tumble kind of fields. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just trying to best explain her positioning. Uh, the the money conversation is always one that comes up and you're bringing up, I think, something valuable that it's going to come up as, look what Mitch McConnell did. Look how he abandoned this person. But it, people discuss this about Blake Masters in Arizona, but the number was like $6 million and that money went to uh, some other races in other cases. But the money from his pack was indeed spent. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell has issues, but the money did get spent and your concern is interesting that if you don't have an honesty about who's been spending the money, how the money got spent, and that it was indeed spent, you're going to have a continuation of this because the polit- the, the, the MAGA right will latch onto this as the only reason there were losses. It's an excuse. It's a facile and unconvincing excuse. The best actor in the universe cannot make a bad script good. Uh, There's a reason why Blake Masters underperformed every Republican in his state. There's a reason why Herschel Walker was the only Republican on a statewide ballot to lose in Georgia. And it's not because there was insufficient funding. These candidates were bad. They did not appeal to their voters. They did not appeal to swing voters. They really energized a particularly unrepresentative faction within the Republican firmament. Not the Republican Party, a faction within it. And that faction does not have popular support. And until that really simple reality is confronted by the people who are doing a lot of cheerleading for this for this wing of the party, it will continue to happen. What I think is is interesting is that people are going to be angry at you. They're going to be angry at me for having you on the air. They're going to be angry at you for being a, a, a never Trumper. That's how it's going to get described. But I think within what you're saying, there's a, there's a second look, and it got uh, exemplified or, or, or vocalized by Van Jones yesterday on CNN, where he was thanking Donald Trump for the Georgia victory. There is this insanely curious uh, acknowledgement and tip of the hat coming from the political left that says, you know, if these uh, Republicans uh, go against Trump-endorsed uh, candidates next time, we lose everywhere. That is the endorsement they've been making in state after state. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. Um, And there's a reason why in 2022 was the first time in almost a century that the the Democrats, the party in power, which is the Democratic Party, managed to hold on to every single incumbent seat since the first time since 1934. It's the reason why 2022 joins a very short list of, of midterm elections in which the party in power managed to stave off the midterm curse. There are more Democrats in this country than Republicans. Hate to tell you, everybody, everybody's really frustrated at me for telling you this. There are more of them than you. 
you have to learn how to appeal to some of them, how to shave off persuadable voters, being the most recalcitrant, most obnoxious, most demagogic person in the room doesn't do it, doesn't work for you, hasn't been working for three consecutive cycles. A fourth would be the very definition of insanity. Continue to do precisely what you've been doing, expect different results. Uh, that's not on me. If you want to make that choice, God bless you. But the outcomes are predictable at this stage, and yelling at the person who predicts them probably isn't the most productive use of your time. Talking to Noah Rothman from Commentary Magazine, Commentary.org. His book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. That's available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. You can get the audiobook as well. Shamefully, I did not read the audiobook. He did his own. Savage that you are, Noah Rothman. Let's get to your piece. Over there at Commentary.org by Victories Undone. Because it's, as I discuss Democrats giving this tip of the hat... They are taking a look at some of their own inner demons and the their own problems. And their problems are, as I view it, uh, the progressives that will keep them from being seen as rational. And they are the ones who are actually extreme. Extreme is the buzzword of 2020, no matter what anybody says. Extreme this, extreme that, extreme the other. And this is starting to take shape with Joe Biden and the team saying, hey, we need to have South Carolina as the first state, the first primary in the nation, because what we have to do is ensure that we have a more representative view of who the candidates are from a more diverse group of people. Because if we rely on just Iowa and New Hampshire, well, that's racist. I mean, in the end, that's how it's, it's playing out. You make uh, the the argument here. You're discussing this. And... and um, I, I think if if I understand you, uh, you're trying to say that this the entire purpose here, the entire strategy here is to keep Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't know if that's been explicitly said, but it is certainly implicit in the reforms to the calendar that the Democratic Party is trying to promote here. That at least the Biden White House is trying to promote the DNC voted for. Um, so. First, the Democrats are doing some interesting things. They're trying to monkey around with the primary calendar. You have uh, really, you know, geriatric Democratic leadership voluntarily jumping onto the ice floe and sending themselves out to sea. Um, that's sort of that's a healthy uh, in- institutional response to political challenges, yes, even as they're they're winning elections. So it's um, it sends interesting signals and suggests that there is some uh, a, a desire for experimentation. That isn't present on the Republican right. Um, one thing, however, though, that this plan seems to assume is that it can predict the future. And that never works out very well. Uh, progressives are right, I think, to see this as punishment for the success that they've enjoyed in Iowa. Um, progressives uh, in Iowa managed to uh, they have this storied history of elevating candidates that don't have a lot of money, come from the outside and end up being powerhouses. Um, the, the, that's in the, the narrative around Barack Obama's ascension, only one Iowa. In the interim, in the last decade, they've turned in some really unrepresentative, poor performances. In 2020, they they just bit the dust. Really embarrassing display. It took them 24 days to certify the results. Nobody could call it. The DNC chair called for a recanvas, and in the end, Iowa voters backed Pete Buttigieg, followed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Really unrepresentative result. And it's dominated, as progressives are wont to say, and as you said, by um, white, affluent progressives. 
um, who are not representative of the party. So say, all right, let's let's shake things up. Let's make sure South Carolina goes first. And then we'll placate New Hampshire and its state law because it has to go first. They can do it with Nevada. And then we'll have Michigan. We'll have Georgia. We'll have a really representative Democratic Party. Right. So fighting this is fighting the last war. And when you fight the last war, you end up being surprised that it's not the last war. And I'm reminded of the degree to which the Republican National Committee engaged in a similar project after 2012 uh, with disastrous results. In 2012, Mitt Romney became the Republican presidential nominee after a very long and unnecessarily prolonged uh, primary race uh, in in which Republican Party voters ended up uh, giving a platform to Ron Paul, who uh, he won a lot of contests or merged with a lot of delegates despite winning very few primary contests. And he was, in this quaint period, the GOP's most embarrassingly fringe candidate. And so the party said, all right, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. So we're going to shake up the calendar. We're going to make sure that more moderate northeastern states, coastal states go earlier in the year. And we'll make sure that there are more winner-take-all contests so we don't have this prolonged delegate race. And then whoever the front runner is will emerge from the primary earlier than Mitt Romney got to. He can pivot to the general election in April or May. And we won't have the problems that we had in 2016. All of the conditions that the Republican Party incepted after 2012 benefited Donald Trump. His base was in the Northeast. He benefited from winner-take-all contests. He was the front runner. He had early momentum. And it ended up being a very prolonged race, in part because he couldn't win more than 30% of the Republican vote. So every problem that Republicans tried to solve with this shift ended up being exacerbated by the very conditions they'd imposed on the party. And you can see something like this happening to the progressive wing of the Republic of the Democratic Party. It's not impossible that you have a, uh, a very progressive uh, but likable candidate, a candidate of color who performs very well in these in these early primary contests, despite the opposition of the institutional Democratic Party. Uh, I don't there's a failure of imagination not to foresee that outcome coming. So even all these changes, as interesting as they are and as healthy as they are, aren't necessarily going to have the the outcome that that everybody in the party seems to want to think that they're going to have. I don't know for sure, but, you know, plans like these never survive first contact with actual voters. But it, it, I take a look at this while I still have got a couple minutes with you, Noah. Um, This is the objective here, as I see it, is they're seeing the progressive rise, the socialist rise, and they know that it's not popular with the wide swaths of America. So they have to eliminate the opportunities for those people on a nationwide basis so they bring about candidates that are more palatable to the totality. True or false? I mean, true. Yeah, more palatable candidates, sure. And, And that's demonstrated, I suppose, by early momentum in these early primary states. But you could foresee a scenario in which a uh, charismatic celebrity personality enticed by perhaps Joe Biden's uh, self-evident decrepitude gets into the race and is very attractive to the voters, uh, prime Democratic primary voters in South Carolina and Michigan and Georgia. That's totally foreseeable. And maybe it's not, you know, to the to the appetite of the DNC or, uh, you know, members of the Democratic Party establishment. But there won't be anything they can do about it by the time such a candidate manages to merge victorious in the in the early four states. Now, this whole plan may not even come to fruition. It faces a lot of opposition from the states that are going to lose the benefit of an early primary vote. And I'd be surprised, actually, if it comes to fruition as the DNC envisions it. But it's possible. And if it is possible, you can absolutely foresee a scenario in which the Democratic Party is undone by its very own attempt to modernize this process. 
Noah Rothman is his name. Commentary.org is where you find him. His book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun. You find that at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. Noah, always a pleasure to have you with us. There is more to get to. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz. So is Governor Eric Holcomb seriously considering a run for Senate? I mean, that's the story that, you know, it's something I'll look into. I am going to break this down. I've got to break down what's going on. And, and one, of my, one of my worst fears, I shouldn't say it's worst. It's just something I don't want. This idea of a swap. The governor becomes the senator. Senator becomes the governor. And it's politics as usual. Count me out of all of that insanity. I don't want it. I don't want it. I'm not looking for it. And there's a question of how you actually fight that because it, it's going to take candidates and it's going to take money. It's going to take resources. It's going to take connections. These things don't exist in a vacuum. So what happens if Indiana faces Hulk of running for Senate and as it's facing Braun, Senator Braun running for governor? How does one respond if that's not what one is looking for? I'll get into that coming up. Find everything. TonyKatz.Locals.com. This is Tony Katz Today.